Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we give you this time this morning. Lord, I pray that you've already begun to prepare our hearts to be the fertile soil to receive the good seed that you have for us today. Lord, I thank you for this time. What a privilege it is for us to be able to gather here, Lord, not for a party or even a fellowship, but Lord, to worship in song and in, in study and in prayer. Lord, I pray right now that you would take this time. Lord, redeem this time. Lord, this is all yours. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we've been going through Ephesians, I just can't help but to be reminded each and every week the, the way the Lord has divided up this chapter in terms of the beginning part of who God is and then what he's done for us. And then he says, stand up and walk, but not just walk. He starts to break it down even further. We looked at how he said to walk in unity, that we are to walk in unity with our Christian brothers and sisters. And then we looked at last uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, that we are to also walk in purity. Um, and then he says, now, knowing all of that and doing all of that, now walk in light. I'm going to just pick up here in verse 8 for a minute. He says, for you were once darkness. That he's saying to them, before you had the light of Christ, before you had the Holy Spirit, you were once darkness. He doesn't say that you were in darkness. There's a very distinct difference. He says, you were once darkness, which meant you contributed to the darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of the darkness, but rather expose them. The idea is that the word expose it means to show something that is guilty or show something that is corrupt. And so when you then become light, or as we said, that you are like a flashlight who once the power goes in you, you can now light or show light or expose what's in the darkness. You know, a funny image just popped into my head. I'm going to share this with you. <laughs> and you may not get it, but it, it, it means something to me. Does anybody ever remember a movie called Pee-wee's Big Adventure? Anyone? Classic. A classic movie, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. At one point, Pee-wee is wandering around in the desert in the dark. And it's spooky, and he can't see anything. And then he remembers that he's got in his bag headlight glasses. And so he puts on the headlight glasses, and when he turns on the headlight... All of the place is flooded with light, and he's surrounded by every sort of animal because he's in the middle of the desert. It's kind of the same ideas. We don't really know what's all around us in the dark until you expose what's there by turning on the light. This is what he's saying is expose them. Don't, be, don't have fellowship what's within the dark, but expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed and made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest 
is light. Therefore, he says, and this is kind of where we ended the last time, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It's very interesting to me. He uses the word, awake you who sleep. Um, the Lord reminded me of, of, a, of a practical example that I remember from a long time ago. And Deirdre and I had just moved into this new apartment in this high-rise apartment building outside of New York. And uh, we're lying there one night, and we heard a sound. Uh, and it was dark. Let me tell you first, it was dark. And we heard a sound that to us in our sleepy state sounded like someone had pushed the lock of our door out and had fell and hit the ground, like someone was breaking in to our apartment in the middle of the night. And it was scary. It was dark. And so I got up to go and see what was there. And I was ready because I had, you know, my hairbrush. That's all I had. So I'm crouched in the dark with my hairbrush. And, and I thought, and I sat there for a minute and I just kind of went, <sighs> and you kind of work yourself up. And then I went, I boldly went out. But as I went, I flipped on every single light I could find in the place. I was with, with my airbrush, flipping on every single light as I went along, trying to expose whatever might be there by turning on all of the, the lights. Now, two things happened when I did that. When I, when I turned on all the lights, I felt braver in that moment because everything that was in the dark was now being exposed by the lights coming on. And all of the shadows or anything that was hidden was now revealed. And what I actually found was that there was nobody in my apartment. It was just the person dropping something on their floor in the upstairs apartment. But it was a moment of overcoming anything that was hidden in the shadows by turning on all of the lights, exposing everything to the light. That's what I did. That's what we are called to do. Expose what's ever in the darkness. Expose what's ever in the darkness in yourself and expose what's ever in the darkness in and around you so that we are not then fellow partakers of what's done in the darkness. In 15, in 15 it says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Circumspectly, it just means accurately. Walk accurately. Remember, he's contrasting either walking in the dark or walking in the light where things are exposed, where things are known. So how accurately can you walk around in the dark? Not accurately at all, in fact. And when it's dark, you just kind of walk around. Have you ever walked through your house in the dark and you're just like, oh, but don't hit, where's that couch? Where is the corner of it? You cannot walk accurately in the dark, but once you expose it to the light, once you turn on the lights, you can walk circumspectly. You can walk accurately wherever it is that you are, and that's what he is calling us to do. Walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. What does redeeming mean anyway? That's, in Greek, it means, I don't know where my note is. I wrote it down. It means to rescue from loss. You know that? It, the word redeem means to rescue from loss. Is it any wonder that it's the same word that God uses to refer to us and why Christ went to the cross? He redeemed us. He rescued us from loss. We have been redeemed. It also means to reclaim or even to buy back. 
We are to, according to Paul here, redeem the time or to rescue from loss or reclaim or buy back. And the time literally means opportunity or occasion. We are to take back every opportunity that has been stolen by the darkness. How do we do that? Well, what's the content of this letter? Start by coming back to the understanding of who God is and what he has done for you and who he says you are. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are redeemed, bought back. Then get equipped. Read the Bible, go to church, pray, listen, surrender yourself, surround yourself with like-minded believers. Ask God to help you put off the old man, which corrupts according to the deceitfulness of lust, and ask him to help you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Walk in love, not lust, which leads to fornication and uncleanness. Fill your mind with things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable so that you push out filthiness and foolish talking and coarse jesting. And when you feel the darkness creeping back in, turn on all the lights and grab your hairbrush. (laughs) Redeeming the time. That's a slightly longer version of that verse. Therefore, he says, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. But I, you know, pastor, I, I just don't know what the will of the Lord is for me. I don't know what the will of the Lord is. I'll tell you what it is. You want to know what the will of the Lord is? I'll tell you. Turn over to first, first Thessalonians. It's just a couple of pages to the right. First Thessalonians. <laughs> Having trouble with that today. First Thessalonians. Chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion or lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified for God, did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. What is the will of God for you? Your sanctification. So that we will know the will of God. Now he says in verse 18, and do not be drunk with wine in which is... Help me out. Dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Dissipation is a word that just means waste. It's a waste. He says, do not be drunk with wine because it's a waste. Now, believe it or not, this verse doesn't actually really have anything to do with alcohol. He is saying, do not be influenced, or what we would even say now, under the influence of alcohol, why? Well, number one, it's a waste. Or number two, when you are under the influence of something that is wasteful, you make bad choices. Does anybody remember waking up in the middle of the night after a particularly bad night of alcohol 
hugging the toilet bowl? I never did that, but I heard from friends that 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 had happened before. Did anybody start the day off going, you know what? You know what I think would be a great choice tonight? It's just hugging the porcelain throne later on. You make bad choices when you're influenced by things that are wasteful. This really, it could be anything. Do not be under the influence of marijuana. Do you know how many times that I've heard in the past where people are like, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything about not smoking marijuana. And by the way, that's a plant that God made, and so it can't be bad, right? Hey, so is plutonium. The fact is that he's saying, do not be influenced by something from the darkness, something that is a waste. Could be drugs. It could be TikTok or YouTube or Netflix or anything that influences you that ends up being a waste of time. He's contrasting this sense. He's like, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you are going to be influenced in your life, and you will be without even choosing it, be influenced by the Holy Spirit, not by something that is a complete waste of time. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled is interesting in Greek. It means be being filled. Continuously, constantly be being filled. Well, why do I have to keep being filled by the Holy Spirit? <laughs> well, I'm a cracked pot, <laughs> so I leak. I continuously need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that I can be constantly influenced and directed by the Holy Spirit. Not by anything that is a a waste. Then he says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Well, that's an interesting verse that he just kind of plops in there, but he's saying being filled with the Holy Spirit rather than being a waste, it brings joy. Singing makes people happy, doesn't it? I'm singing, I'm in church, and I'm singing. Some of you are smiling, thank God. (laughs) Yeah, the 11 o'clock, they'll think that's funny. Singing brings joy when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we sing spiritual songs, hymns, and songs to one another. There's joy there. God does not consider that a waste. I just so encourage all of you, and I can see that you're all here, and you're all here nice and early, that you come in time to sing before the service. It is not the introduction that, you know, like, well, I don't really have to be there until, you know, 9.22 because then all the singing is done. I can just slip in. It's not singing. It's worship. It's joy-filled, spirit-filled song in worship to God. Come and sing. Have you ever come in to church service just in like a horrible mood, just like in a bad mood and just like this? I'm not singing. I'll go. I'll get there, but I, I'm not going to sing. Just sit there like this. And then all of a sudden, you're just like, well, I kind of like this song. <laughs> and then you start to sing it. And next thing you know, well, if you're me, you're like, you're, you know, you're, you're just like, score, you know. <laughs> because there's joy in singing praises. And it's not the music. It's the praise and the worship. So come and sing and be a part of it. 
and, and sing to one another and sing to the Lord. And that's what he's saying, songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, you know, and some of you if, you, if you can't carry a tune, the in your heart part is really important for you all. <laughs> but no, sing loud, sing. Verse 20 says, giving thanks sometimes for some things. Oh, wait, is that not what your Bible says? Does your version not say give thanks to God sometimes for some things? Because the funny thing is, don't we mostly live that way? Don't we mostly live as if our Bible says give thanks to God for some things sometimes? Well, Paul says that we're supposed to give thanks to God for all things all times. That means give thanks to God when things are going great and give thanks to God when things aren't going great or when you're in a time of dryness or struggle or there's obstacle in front of you. And we could say, you know what, Lord? I don't know what your plan is for this situation that I'm in, but I know what your plan is for me. And if you don't know what your, his plan is for you, just jot down Jeremiah 29, 11. Through the prophet Isaiah, he says, for I know the plans that I have for you, that they are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope, a future and a hope. He says, I have plans for you. You have to know that I love you beyond measure. I have more grace and mercy than you could ever spend I sent my son to die for you on the cross. I love you so much. Know that. And knowing that, know that I have a plan for you. So that when you are in a situation that isn't thrilling or happy or good, that's trying and difficult, you can say, I don't completely get why you're doing this, Lord, but I trust you. I love you. I trust you. I know you love me. Lord, I place my life in your hands. And oh, you know what? Maybe what is it, Lord, that you're trying to teach me in this moment? What opportunity is there? What door are you opening that I could walk through? Lord, maybe this whole situation is just to teach me to take my eyes off myself and put them on somebody else. Then he follows that up with, again, submitting to one another in the fear of the God. That idea of, you know what, we can praise God even in a hard situation. And we could say, you know what, maybe this actually isn't about me. Maybe this is about someone that you want me to be about. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. We good? Everybody good? Shall we just call it us? Let's pray. <laughs> it's easy for it's easy for Terry to say amen. Alice isn't here today. Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. Like this, you know, I you know this is the moment where women start to pack up their stuff and they're just like, mm-hmm. So putting my notebook away. But here's the deal, like, why do we have such an issue? Why, why do we push back against this? Well, I believe that it's because that women especially start to feel like the Bible is saying, you're less than a man. I've heard before that people will say, you know, the Bible, it, 
The Bible hates women. God is anti-woman. God, God provides for women over and over and over again through the Bible. Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah to a woman. Jesus had uh, women be the first witnesses of his resurrection. Jesus holds women in very high regard. There's nothing in the Bible that would lead me to believe that God thinks that women are less than men. In fact, you need to know that this isn't saying women submit to men. This is saying, wives, submit to your own husbands. He's talking about uh, an order that has been established from the beginning of time within the marriage of a man and a woman. Not, uh, 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 not that men are uh, more, more value than women. God does not see uh, men and women differently at all. In fact, there is, there's no difference between men and women, slaves and, and free. This is not talking about that. So that if you're a woman here, please do not start to feel like the Bible is saying you're less than a man or you're less than a husband. What we do know is that God is a God of order. Can we agree on that? God is a God of order. How do I know this? God is a God of order and it makes sense. Do you remember way back in Genesis when he created everything? He created land and then man. Because if he had done it in reverse order, Adam would have been treading water. Do you understand that? He has order, and that order makes sense. And so he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. When he says, that he is that man, that the husband is the head of the wife. The word uh, head actually means like almost like linchpin or cornerstone, holding two things together. That's the word. Not like I'm the boss, but I'm the cornerstone of the marriage, meaning that it is my, the responsibility now is on me to be the one that holds the two together within Christ. Do you understand? But, Women, you have been done a disservice by history. Now, we think that the women's liberation movement did amazing things for women, but it actually hurt you quite a bit because it convinced you of something that's anti-biblical. Let me explain. <clears throat> Way back in Genesis, I'm going to just turn there for a second. Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, after the serpent had convinced Eve to eat the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden to eat of, sin entered the world. Uh, Eve, Eve gave it to Adam, Adam ate it, sin entered the world at that point. And the Lord came to them afterwards and said, here is the consequence of you um, eating this fruit of sin now entering the world, here are the consequences. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That word right there is the same word that's later used when he was talking to Cain saying that, that sin um, lies at the door. It desires you. It lies at the door. So the word desire for Eve to her husband wasn't that it was going to be in some kind of romantic connection uh, or some kind of a, a sexual connection. It's in contrast to the next verse, which says that he will rule over you, meaning that he was saying, Eve, from this point forward, wives will always try 
to take over the position that I've placed the husband in. And many of you probably know this and have experienced the idea of, you know what, I don't know why my husband needs to be in charge. I should be in charge. And that is from the very beginning. That's not a women's lib uh, uh, talking point. That has been since sin entered the world from the very beginning, and it has been ever since. But God says, but I've established an order that needs to be followed, not because women are less than, but because I've established an order. We understand order. We understand that, you know, you can't have a team and have uh, a whole team of leaders. How many of you have cars that have two steering wheels? My car only has one steering wheel. Now, my wife sits next to me and is very good at giving me directions. <laughs> but ultimately, I have to make that decision. Do I go that way or do I not go that way? We don't have two steering wheels that we're fighting along the way because inevitably, she would want to go that way and I would go this way and our car would just split right down the middle. No, God gives us an order. Everybody falls in the order. In 1 Corinthians 11.3, there's another section that says, and I have to find it. But I want you to know, this is Paul writing, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. Now he's talking about the man and the woman. That means he's saying the head of every husband is Christ. The head of every uh, wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So ladies, I want you to understand this. If you start thinking, well, my husband is supposed to be um, the head, I'm supposed to submit to his authority, but I think I should be in authority, and so I'm going to be in, authority, in, in the position of authority over my husband. You haven't replaced your husband, you've replaced Christ. Christ is the head of the husband, so if you put yourself in that position, you're not replacing your husband, you're replacing Christ. Why is that dangerous? Going back to this idea that when sin entered the world, that was the desire, the, the wife would now desire the position that her husband was put in that goes all the way back to um, Isaiah where he talks about Lucifer and Lucifer says, I am going to exalt myself above the clouds so that I am equal with God. The idea that I will replace God. Essentially, uh, a wife, if you're saying, look, I'm going to put myself in authority over my husband, then you're replacing Christ in the relationship, not your husband's position. And it's, it's the reason why we see so many relationships go like this. Two steering wheels in the car. This is tough. It's been poured into us and into us and into us to make you think, well, I can't, I can't let my husband be an authority. I can't, I can't submit myself to my husband's authority because he's a doofus. Think of every TV show you've ever seen for the last 20 years and how is the husband portrayed? He's a doofus. A doofus. Go back and watch like Andy Griffith. There you go. Although, you know, he was, he didn't have a wife. Don't go there. His wife died. <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Thank you. You got to go even farther back to see a husband portrayed as not a doofus. 
That is why it's this is such a struggle. We're like, well, not, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, and and we're just gonna go on because, ladies, he has words for the men too. But, ladies, uh, please, please, do not walk away thinking, well, Pastor Aaron thinks that I'm less than a man. No, I don't. God doesn't think that either. But I believe that God gives us order for a purpose, for good, for our good. It would be like you were saying, well, it's okay for me to usurp the order. Is it okay for your husband to usurp the order also? Because then he would put himself in the position of Christ as well. For the husband is the head of the wife, that's the cornerstone, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be subject to their own husbands. Again, your own husband is what this is talking about. Not every other man in the church. Your own husband. And do you see the emphasis that he's putting on your own husband, your own wife? He's going to say there's a sanctity in that relationship. Wives, you're not subject to the authority of just men, nor should you be. Your own husband in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, you are to love your wife. Ah, that's easy. I love my wife. Do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? Sure. What does that mean? It says sacrificially. Christ loved the church sacrificially. In fact, Christ loved the church so much that he laid down his life for the church. So husbands, are you prepared to lay down your life for your wife? Pastor, if somebody came in here with a gun and they were going to shoot my wife, I would dive in front and take that bullet in a second. And I think all of us husbands here, we would all say that. We would say, I would definitely sacrifice my life for the life of my wife. That's a lot of rhyme. How about this? Sunday night. Sunday night football. That's you just. That's all you want. All I. All I've been. I just. You know. I want to get through the day. I just want to sit on the couch. I want to watch Sunday night football. I'm not hurting anybody. And my wife comes on and goes, "Oh, you're going to watch that? Why don't you come in and watch some British show with me?" <laughs> Come in and watch this British show. And you're like. <sighs> now, are you willing to lay down your life for your wife? And it's not this. Fine. <sighs> but I hope you know what I'm giving up for you. Coming in and watching you know, the crown, <laughs> which I happen to really like, by the way. It's the only thing I could think of. Um, I hope you know what I'm giving up for you. Look, I'm giving up this. Is that what Jesus did? Look, I'm coming to the cross, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to take your penalty for sin. I hope you know. I hope you realize what I'm sacrificing for you. I don't read those words in the Bible. It says he willingly sacrificed his life for the church, husband's when your wife says, oh, why don't you come in and let's talk about our day. 
Yes, that's what I want. I, I'm there for you because I love you. I love you. So, so I'm there for you. Husbands, love your wives. In fact, husbands, die for your wives. Husbands, die for your wives. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You know what this reminds me of? You know the church is considered the bride of Christ. Have you ever been to a wedding where, you know, you're, you're helping the bride get ready to come out? And you know what? They have whole bridal suites. The, the whole purpose of the bridal suite is to prepare the bride to be presented to her husband. And so they're, you know, they've got a team of girls and they're like fixing things and putting those little white baby breath flowers in her hair and they're, they're like straightening out her dress. And the whole time she's like this because you just want to get a, a wrinkle or a spot so that she could be presented perfectly. And, and this is the idea. This is how we're being presented to God. But it's, it's the idea is like, husbands, are you, are you, Holding up, are you preparing your wife so that she is without spot or blemish? And here's, here's the thing, like, husbands, there should never be a time when you are talking to somebody else disparagingly about your wife. Should never be a time as you presenting her as without wrinkle. Love your wife. So, Husbands ought to love their own wives. <laughs> Husbands, love your own wives. Circle own. Husbands, love your own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know what? He's going to say, no, for, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Again, guys, listen, you're sitting there and, and you, you know what? Your wife says, oh, you can watch football. And you're sitting there and you're watching football Sunday afternoon and your stomach starts to grumble. And what do you say? Shut up. You, you be quiet. No, you say, oh, my stomach is growling. I think I'm going to have some tacos. And, and off you go and you get whatever it is that you, whatever your body is saying, like, I'm hungry. And you're like, yes. Let's get some food and let's take care of that. Because you love your own flesh. You love your body. And he's saying, just as you are so anxious to fill your stomach with food when it growls, you should be that anxious to take care of your wife, to love your wife. I'm just looking around to see how many husbands are looking. It's like husbands. <laughs> Is he back on the wives yet? No one ever hated his own flesh. I heard Chuck Smith, he put it this way. He goes, no one ever hated their own flesh. People will say, oh, I'm so ugly. When I look in the mirror, I'm so ugly. He said, if you hated your own flesh, you'd say, I'm so glad I'm so ugly when I look in the mirror. Because we don't hate our own flesh. We get up, we take care of ourselves, we brush our hair, those of us who have it. <laughs> we put on clothes, we kind of look in the mirror, we're like, yeah, that's as good as it gets. And off you go. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become 
one flesh. The idea that he puts, he, he's quoting Genesis here, but the idea is that at some point, a man leaves his family and he goes and he finds a wife and those two are joined together as one flesh. Now, the idea here isn't that he leaves geographically. I mean, we know in the first century especially, it wasn't that the, the young men would leave their father's house completely. In fact, when they found a, a wife, they would go back and they would build a room onto their father's house where then they would all live together. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a geographic leaving, but it was an emotional leaving. It means that with, with their hearts, they would step away from now the authority of their parents and they would be joined together with their wife. And so it's like, it's even though we're living in an upstairs room that I built onto my father's house, now we're separated from them. It doesn't mean that like now I'm going, I'm married, but I spend every single waking hour with my mom or my dad um, and not being in this new relationship that I have with my wife. That idea that a, a son would add on to his father's house and then take a bride, and yet they would have this closeness, is actually a, a, a very small model or a shadow of what Jesus says that he's doing. He says, in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. He says that I've gone to prepare a place for you as the groom or the to-be husband. He has built on a house onto his father's house to bring all of us, his bride, the church, to live with him so that we are all one family. But he says here that a, a son has to leave the confines of the relationship of his mother and father and go out and be joined together as one flesh. It says, this is a great mystery. This is a great mystery. It seems like more and more. So that is a great mystery that the, the son actually leaves his mother and father and goes out. I see this a lot. In my own family, I have nephews who are in their mid-twenties, still living with mom and dad. And, and I mean, maybe it's just a time thing. I mean, when I was younger, like 18, 19, we were out, right? Now it's 25, 26, 27, 28. Clearly, it's a mystery, the leaving of your, the leaving of your mother and father seems to be a mystery. <clears throat> Listen, I'm joking, but... but the idea isn't that they have to leave your house, but they have to become an adult person. And to leave you, they have to not necessarily leave your house, but they have to leave that bond that's been formed all those years and, and step into that position that God has called them to or ordained them to. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless... Let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You see what God has done here? He knows us so well, doesn't he? He says, wives, I'm going to give you one thing. Husbands, I'm going to give you one thing. One thing is all you can handle. One thing is all you can remember. I'm not going to give you a list of, of 48 things I'm going to give you one. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Why, why do you think God would, would, would give those two separate things? Like he was, why wouldn't he say, you know, um, 
Husbands, respect your wives. And why wouldn't he say, wives, love your husbands? Well, because he knows us and he has completely created us different. Do you know that you're... um, (laughs) Gosh, I'm sorry, I lost the word. The fact that you're a, a male or a female is built right into your DNA. It's not just the parts on the outside that you can cut off or add on, as seems to be the understanding these days. But your maleness or your femaleness is built into the very fiber of your being. You cannot change that. God has already established it. And in that, he knows, men, you're different than women. Women, you are different than men. The things that you need are different than the things that you need. He says, I know that the thing that a wife needs to know the most is that her husband loves her. And God says, and I know that the thing that a husband needs the most from his wife is to know that she respects him. A husband says, I don't really need to know that my my wife loves me. I don't need her to, to tell me that she loves me. I know she loves me. She's still here. But I really need to know that she respects me. And wives say, look, I don't really care that much about the whole respect, but I need to know that my husband loves me. And the husband says, I told you I loved you when we got married, and if anything changes, I'll let you know. The wife says, no, I need to know that you love me. I need to know. You know, when your wife says, love you, I love you, okay, I love you. It's almost foreign for me to be like, I love you too, because I'm like, of course you know I do. But she's like, but I need you to say it to me. Husbands need to know their wives respect them like we need air to breathe. Wives need to know that their husbands love them like they need air to breathe. Those are the two things that God said, you respect your husbands, you love your wives. Now, here's the other thing that you need to understand here, that maybe you're a, a wife and you're saying, well, as soon as my husband shows me that he loves me, then I'll respect him. Or you're a husband and you're saying, look, as soon as my wife starts respecting me, then I'll let her know that I love her. But this isn't a response to what your spouse does. Husbands, you don't love your wives in response to them respecting you. Wives, you don't love, you don't respect your husbands in response to them loving you. You do it, we do it in response to what God has done for us. Not a response on what our spouse does for us. Because otherwise it's a contest. But if we say, I will love my wife, I will respect my husband, as the Bible says, in response to what God has done for me, which, by the way, if you don't know what it is, go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians. That is our response to God, not our response to our spouse. Now we're going to go on after Christmas to talk about children and parents. (laughs) Walk in unity. Walk in purity. Walk in light. Remember that we stand on the word of God, which is true, no matter what the world around us has said or changed or likes to say. The word of God is true. He has a plan for you, even when it seems hard to understand or to accept. 
there's a plan. And I hope after today to see you all on Christmas. Or, or please don't run away. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father God, I do thank you so much this morning for your word and Lord, for helping us to understand what others would like to point out as uh, a mean God or a misogynistic God, Lord. But Lord, we see through your word, your care for women and your care for men, for your creation, those who you created perfectly, exactly as you uh, desired to. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be able to take what we heard today and apply it. Lord, that we would see the wisdom in your wisdom. I thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Lord, that you died for us on the cross. Lord, that we can trust you and your plan for us to give us a hope and a future. I thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.